When the right person does come along in the UFC with the right sort of personality or entertaining fight style, we see that a lot of the time the promotion will get behind them and will try to push them that little bit harder to get them towards a title or a place where they can sell pay-per-views and make everyone some money. Many of those fighters were able to hit the targets the UFC held in front of them, but it is also pretty interesting to look at those that didn't. What made them so marketable? Why did they stumble? And why, despite losing, did the UFC still continue to push them and give them opportunities that other fighters just weren't getting? Well, let's take a look. I'm Balian from MMA on Point. Muchas gracias to our amigos, the MMA on Point Hall of Famers, for supporting the content. And these are 10 stars the UFC kept pushing. So, number 10, Michelle Watson. Before the UFC took on half Invictor's roster, it was where the best in women's MMA fought. In 2012, the Karate Hottie was one of their top stars and she was a defending champion, but that was at atom weight. But the thing is, the UFC didn't have an atom weight division, which meant when she arrived from Invicta, she was already kind of outsized by everyone. Immediately, she was headlining fight nights against girls like Paige Van Zandt and then top competition, Rose Navajunez. Tisha Torres. I mean, she was clearly very talented, but just didn't seem to be able to beat the divisional elite. She also got a lot of promo from the UFC. I mean, she had dedicated YouTube videos for her. As soon as she had a bounce back streak, they threw her right back in the mix with a former champion, Yuana, in another fight night headliner, which would have set her up again for a title shot. Michelle so far has headlined five of her own fight nights, despite being two and three in them, which does show even though she's losing, she's still getting high profile bookings. The Karate Hottie is a real veteran of women's MMA. Maybe she could have been champ, but I mean, when they did have a weight class, did they? Number nine, Greg Hardy. I've been watching the sport a while and normally you do have to do something pretty special to get a UFC contract at just 3-0. You know, or there's something else going on. With Greg Hardy, you had a former NFL player and he made his MMA pro debut on the Contender Series. But they couldn't give him a contract when he was just 1-0, could they? Or apparently even when he was 2-0. So why did they even have him on the show? Exposure, obviously. He also debuted in the co-main event on a fight night. And a lot of people were pretty upset that he got pushed so high up the card, especially because some people didn't agree with his signing anyway. He was removed from the NFL for breaching the code of conduct and Rachel Ostovich was on the card and she had been a victim. So some people thought it was pretty ignorant. Anyway, he got DQ'd in his debut for basically not knowing the rules of the sport, which wasn't a great look for anyone, if I'm honest. Don't forget he had a win overturned for using an inhaler in between rounds. I don't know who's telling him the rules, but he's worse at cheating than Ben Affleck in Gone Girl. But maybe things were taking too long because then he randomly got the number seven guy, Volkov, who had just been in the title eliminator and he got completely outclassed. Greg bounced back fairly well. He got two more wins, but they kept trying to get him to move up the division and against high-level competition and on pay-per-view main cards but he just couldn't get wins and he was not re-signed. Number 8, Paige Van Zandt. When you're trying to build a division in the UFC, fighters that come along like PVZ are like those perfect rectangle blocks in Tetris. She was just going to slide right into place. 12-Gage made her debut as a complete unknown but she was supposed to be on the Ultimate Fighter but she was only 20 and you have to be 21 because of alcohol. Do it, do it. Anyway, she won, and it was fight of the night, and then a few months later, she was one of the athletes to sign an exclusive deal with Reebok after just one UFC fight. It was pretty crazy. And she's got that thing, man. She's got that thing that I always talk about that you can't teach. They just have everybody in my dressing room tonight wanted to meet, wanted to meet her. I mean, she certainly had something. She made it to number seven in the division, but had to then take on number three, Rose Namajunas, and it was way too much for PBZ, and she lost a one-sided fight. After that, she took a break and went on Dancing with the Stars. Some people weren't sure if she was ever coming back. And when she did, she had some more tough fights. She got to headline a fight night, but ultimately, she went two and three. Her last fight was against the 10-1 and Amanda Hebas on the main card of 251. Another high-profile, tough fight. A win would have completely turned things around for her, put her back towards the title, but she lost again. But ultimately, 12-Gage got a a 
lot out of her MMA career and the push she received. Number seven, Uriah Faber. Someone else who got seven UFC and WEC title shots was Uriah Faber. Now that is a lot of opportunities for the California kid. Why did he get so many? Well, back in 2008, he was 21 and one. Okay, he was like freaking He-Man. He had defended both his King of the Cage and WEC titles five times. Those weight classes weren't in the UFC yet, which basically made him the best in the world and on lots of people's pound for pound list. So when he lost his WEC title to Mike Brown, he rightly so only needed one more win to get another shot at it. But when he lost again and then Jose Aldo beat Mike Brown to take the belt, the fact Faber was still their biggest star definitely helped him then get another title shot right away and this time against a new champion. But he couldn't win it. And then he fought Dominic Cruz in the first ever UFC bantamweight title fight and he couldn't get it done there either. But the UFC gave him an immediate title eliminator against Brian Bowles. He won and he was supposed to rematch Cruz right after an ultimate fighter season but Henan Burrell replaced him and he beat Uriah. For two years he beat everybody and Cruz wasn't coming back so he logically got another shot against Burrell and was sort of TKO'd in the first round this time. But at this point Uriah Faber was now 0 for 5 in his last title fights. He still stuck around after that but most surprisingly was the last push to get another shot at Cruz in 2016. I mean Faber had just beaten the unranked Frankie Signs and no one in the top 10 before that but the UFC still put him in against Cruz for one last showdown and that was Faber's 7th title shot. By all means though I should mention aside from that last one he pretty much always beat the top guys and it really was a 50-50 thing with the UFC just always wanting to push him to a title shot quickly and that's why he isn't ranked any higher on this list. Number 6 Cynthia Calvillo at first glance, it does seem like Cynthia is just another untested fighter brought into the UFC early. She was only 3-0 as a pro, but her amateur fight against Aspen Ladd for the WFC flyweight title solidified her as one of the top upcoming 25ers in the country. And new WFC amateur women's flyweight champion, Cynthia Calvillo! Right from a UFC debut, you could see Dana thought Calvillo had star potential. Mexico was a growing market. They gave her high-profile fights. I just wanted to get your thoughts on how you felt to be on the main card of a pay-per-view. I mean, I just went out there and fought. I knew I was going to get the finish. I didn't know how, but, you know, it's just another day for me. And it wasn't just fights she was getting. Dana was making some crazy comparisons. First time I ever met Conor McGregor. I called the runs on. I said, man, I don't know if this guy can fight, but if he can even throw a punch, he's going to be a fucking rock star. Ronda Rousey, I had a 45-minute meeting with her and decided to do women's MMA and uh I feel pretty strongly about this one too. At first she won three in a row, but then she was given Carla Esparza, a former champ, on another UFC pay-per-view main card, and she lost a decision. She took that in her stride pretty well though, and after a few wins, but still, while she was unranked, they gave her the number one contender, Jessica I. That's pretty crazy. And she won, but it was only going to be the best from there, so she fought number two, Caitlin Chukagian, and lost, and then she got the number one contender again, even though she just lost, Jessica Andrade, and she got TKO'd. After that, it was four more losses in a row to high-level competition but it made it a six fight losing streak after she kind of got thrown into the lion's den number five darren till Darren Till's UFC debut happened on just nine days' notice, and he certainly had the confidence. After his fourth win, he called himself the greatest fighter on planet Earth. Well, if you're going to talk like that, and you're from a country with a good UFC market, and you're undefeated, you're probably going to get a push, and that's exactly what happened. When Till was still unranked, he was matched up against the number six guy, Cowboy, and he only went and bloody TKO'd him in the first round. So then he got the number one contender, Wonderboy, and Daz managed to get the nod from the judges, and in one year, he'd gone from unranked UFC fighter to title challenger but he lost in his title fight and then the UFC gave him his own fight night to headline in London and he was KO'd and what followed next was four years of rough competition just like to be invincible to being basically
impact on the ground is just, it was devastating for me, you know. Uh, I didn't even want to go out there tonight. I was thinking of ways to, like, fake an injury, and I was so terrified. I was I was scared, man. He moved up to middleweight and got a win against Kelvin, but it did seem to cost him a lot emotionally. He and Israel had a bit of beef back and forth. <laughs> And he started getting opponents to set him up towards that title shot. But Darren, unfortunately, fell at every hurdle along the way. Number four, Colby Covington. The hype and attention didn't build very quickly for Colby at first. It took like three years and a five-on-one UFC record before he went from that unranked fight with Brian Barberina straight to the number seven guy, Dong Yong Kim. That's when he started to play the bad guy as well. I wonder uh, if you're kind of embracing the role a little bit of, of maybe being a guy that, that, that people just don't like. Maybe, maybe you end up being the villain in your career. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, you know, I'll take the heel, the heel, uh, you know, persona. It is what it is. You know, at the end of the day, these guys are going to respect me when I keep embarrassing the whole division. People started taking notice after he beat Maya, who was ranked number three at the time. So from there, the RDA fight for the interim title was a pretty logical step. The interim title was odd though, considering they had Woodley defending his belt literally three months later. But either way, it was a shoe in for the undisputed title fight next, right? Well, not exactly. Memorably, Colby was on awful terms with the UFC back then. Let's go see what, what Uncle Fester Dana White's doing. Why do I get robbed out of a title shot? I'm number one in the world. I got a world title. No one beat me for this world title. Dana, what's up, bro? How you doing? How you doing? I just want an explanation why I'm not fighting for the belt this weekend. Stop Come on, bro. Stop I just want I want an explanation, oh, man. Gambling. You too. Yeah, yeah, He's a big mouth fucking idiot. So he basically got stripped and punished with a random fight against a legend in Robbie Lawler, but who was way out of title contention by then. Either way, he finally got the title shot he'd already earned a year prior by the end of 2019. He showed a ton of heart in that one. It was incredibly close, but he did fall short. So far, everything he's definitely earned, but from here it gets a little weird. Like in the next title shot, similar to his ex-best bud Jorge, he got another quick title shot off of just one win against a then very much shot-worn Woodley, which was definitely a big push so soon. But the biggest push is this latest one coming soon against Leon Edwards. And the key thing about that is he has not had a single win over anyone in the top 15. His last two opponents that were have both since retired and they were very much on their way out when he did beat them. There are so many deserving contenders that it would have been great to see him get a win over, at least one of them. But clearly, the UFC doesn't want to take any risks here. Number three, BJ Penn. Most of the pushes BJ received in his UFC run were pretty much bloody well deserved. Three first round finishes got him his first shot, but the draw in his second shut down the division for a while. On his UFC return, he got an immediate title shot, though, at welterweight. On his UFC return, he got a title shot randomly up a weight class that he'd never fought at for the welterweight title, which some people thought was a bit unfair, you know, that BJ was also going to lose, but he beat Matt Hughes, and he became a superstar. But the prodigy wasn't happy in America, apparently. He wanted to go to Japan and fight there as well. He got another title eliminator when he came back, though, which was, I suppose, fair enough, but when he lost to GSP in the actual title eliminator, he got a title shot right away anyway, and he didn't win. But guess what? The UFC reinvented the lightweight division, and they gave BJ a spot on the Ultimate Fighter as a coach, and then gave him a title shot at the vacant strap. He did have to beat Jens Pulver first, but that was still a ridiculous amount of opportunities for BJ. And don't get me wrong, it was a legendary run. I'm actually glad it worked out the way it did, despite the push. But his next fight right after his first title defense was against GSP, and this time it was a 
super fight, champion versus champion. I want to be known as the best fighter in the world. And to be the best, the, the guy to beat is BJ Penn, you know? Which was amazing. So you can't complain about that. But as BJ's career went on and he lost the belt to Frankie, the UFC kept trying to get him back in the title picture. His draw with John Fitch somehow earned him another title eliminator against Nick Diaz. And then he went right back in there with the next top contender, Rory McDonald. BJ Penn has had seven UFC title shots and three title eliminators. Plenty he deserved, but some he got just because he's BJ Penn, baby. Number two, Holly Holm. Since day bloody one, when the UFC signed Holly Holm, they wanted to book her against Ronda Rousey. She was a multiple weight class boxing and also a kickboxing champion. She had over 18 defenses and an undefeated MMA record. It wasn't that surprising when she made a UFC debut in the co-main event of Rousey versus Ngannou. Ronda even talked about her post-fight. Well, I was really impressed with Holly Holm tonight. She's a world champion boxer. I'd always like to test myself against that level of striking. If Holly had head-kicked Raquel Pennington, they might have given her Rowdy that very night. But by the end of the year, and just one more fight, she was already fighting for the title. She KO'd Ronda, became a superstar. The rest of Holly's UFC career, though, was quite up and down. But it didn't stop her getting title shots. On the back of a two-fight losing streak, she got a shot at the featherweight title. But that's mainly because Cyborg had to sit out after a USADA flag. She lost that and was now 0-3, but managed to head-kick Betchkaia, who was ranked 11th at the time. And boom, they threw her right back in another title shot against Chris Cyborg. She was the only person in nine years not to get finished, but she didn't win and was now 1-3, and three, beat Megan Anderson, and then for some reason got another title shot, this time at bantamweight against Nunes. I say for some reason, I think it's because Nunes wanted to prove she could beat her along with everybody else. Holly's the only, the only former champion that I did, didn't beat yet. Still, that was Holmes' fourth title shot in the UFC, and even in her last fight against Myra Bueno-Silva, it was promoted as Holly trying to make one more title run. And if she won, I bet they would have given it to her. Number one, Brock Lesnar. Arguably, the big man from the WWE got the biggest UFC push of anybody ever. He made his debut at just 1-0, and you know he lost his first fight, but that didn't matter at all. He needed just one win in the UFC against Heath Herring before he was going to be fighting for a title with a pro record of just 2-1. and one. I mean, he didn't even have to beat the guy he lost to. He just skipped past Frank Mir. Frank would get his chance to fight Brock at UFC 100, which was promoted as the biggest event ever, with Brock headlining it, and he smashed him in the rematch. Even when he lost the title to Cain Velasquez, he still got a spot on the Ultimate fighter as a coach because why the hell not the fight against jds didn't happen and then brock had to sit out with diverticulitis but when he came back to competition he was overrun by overeem who went right for his body and we didn't see brock for another five years and both of those fights were meant to be title eliminators but that didn't matter at all nor did the two losses because when he came back he was obviously still a massive draw and they tried to make him main event ufc 200 but enough people complained so the actual title fight between amanda and misha took the spot instead even after that disaster, with Brock skipping the USADA window and then testing positive, he almost got another free immediate title shot against DC. Win or lose, Brock was a star and the UFC were always going to give him the biggest fight possible. Right, everyone. Thank you very much for watching the video today. Hope you enjoyed that one. I want to give a shout out to Luke Taylor. Boom, you edited this video, didn't you, mate? Yep. What would you like as a present? You want to punch me? Okay. Weak, pathetic, he's got nothing. You might think some of these guys weren't actually pushed, that's okay, you know, I'm trying to caveat some of it, you know, some of them are legends, they had a lot of title shots. If you did think of any that I didn't think of though, just go ahead and put them down below in the comments, I'll read them, we can have a discussion. Thank you as well to you channel champions, we appreciate you joining us here at MMA On Point, thank you for supporting the content, don't forget if you do join you get two podcast episodes a week, that's 30 minutes of fun, free content, and you can join in on the writers meeting as well, and give your ideas. If you enjoyed the video, 
thumbs up's appreciated, guys. Thank you very much. We do work hard on these. And if you want to see more from us, the subscribe button is right there. You can join the MMA on Point fun times.